Please turn in your Bibles to our text this evening, which is Psalm 90. Psalm 90, which is a prayer of Moses. Prayer of Moses. Lord, we come to you now to consider this chapter of your word. We pray that the same Spirit who inspired the text will open our eyes and quicken our hearts so that we might see and that we might understand, that we might believe the things that are taught to us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I read this psalm, which is written by Moses, it's a psalm, it's a sometimes called a song of Moses. There's actually another passage that is actually the song of Moses, but this, in fact, is a prayer of Moses spoken to God. When I read this, I want you to think about, oh, this is very unusual for Presbyterians. I want you to think about how this psalm makes you feel. We want, we want objective truth. God ministers to the whole person, the mind and the heart and the emotions and the will. Every aspect of it is, is a recipient of God's goodness. Think about how this psalm makes you feel, because I'm going to ask you after we read it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sin in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants." Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as you have seen, as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here we end the reading of the psalm. So, how does this psalm make you feel? You can answer. We're a little less formal in the evening. 
you feel secure. That's that's good, and and you should because there are notes of trusting and security in the Lord. Anyone else? That's not the only answer. Anyone else? Needy. Needy. I was hoping someone would say that or something similar, because I think one of the applications of this psalm is for us to realize our complete dependence on God. Complete dependence on him. Anyone else? When I read this psalm, I feel a little melancholy. There is a a soberness to this psalm. There are some psalms that are, you know, wildly enthusiastic. Think of Psalm 150, you know. Everything that has breath, praise the Lord. It just builds and builds like a, a crescendoing wave. This psalm is meditative. It is a prayer to God. It completely acknowledges the difficulty of living in a fallen world. Living under the anger of God. That he afflicts us during the time of our lives. Notice, and this is why I called it the sobering song or the sobering prayer of Moses. This is really a, a Presbyterian psalm. You know, we have the we have this reputation of being serious and 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 we never laugh. I don't know where that idea got, but but I do remember uh, hearing stories of a a Presbyterian lady who fell down the stairs, picked herself up, and said, "Oh, I'm glad that's over with." You know, it was predestined, right? (laughs) We tend to be somewhat reserved. We tend to have joy in the Lord, but also a sober reflection on our sins and on the difficulties of life. And that's actually how it should be. The emotions should be balanced. And I'm glad in your answers you actually gave kind of a a balance of emotions. Yes, our lives are short. I I just a couple months ago entered this span that Moses writes about. By the way, how long did Moses live? 120 years. He was way past his due date. I mean, 120 years. And He's writing during his lifetime. He says the average lifespan is somewhere between 70 and 80 years. I just entered that decade. The psalm becomes more meaningful the older you get. Just a warning. (laughs) It's a sobering song. It recognizes the shortness of life the hardships of life. To some extent, it also reminds us a little bit of the book of Ecclesiastes. What's the word that Ecclesiastes uses over and over and over again? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity, meaning 
It's empty. It has no meaning. It's ephemeral. It passes quickly and people forget. Ten years from now, ten years from the time we pass away from this life, many people won't even remember who we were. But also like the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, Moses finds an anchor. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes says everything under the sun is vain, but on a few brief occasions in that book, he peeks out from under the sun and looks at God. And that is the, those are the only positive parts of Ecclesiastes. When he breaks through that barrier of being under the sun and looks up to heaven and renews his understanding of who God is. Similarly, even though so much of this psalm focuses on the difficulties of life, the brevity, the briefness of life, we're like the grass in the morning, it flourishes and is renewed in the evening, it fades and withers. Moses contrasts that with the eternal nature of God. And notice he does not just think of God's eternal nature as a theological principle, kind of like what we did when we were talking about the, the catechism. It's not just a truth about God, and here's where we get the clue here, because Moses starts this psalm, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. There is a relationship between God and his people. There is a, a love. We do not just think about God, we experience God. And there's where the light comes in. There's in the midst of this sobering psalm, there is where the light comes in. We have God. We don't just know truths about God, but he remains distant from us. He is our dwelling place. We live and move and have our being in him. The eternal God, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As far back in history as I can, as man can see, or as far forward as he can imagine, God remains there, unchanged, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What does the Bible say about God's decree to save a people for himself. Your names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He knows his sheep by name. They hear his voice and they follow him. The Lord is my shepherd. He always has been. He always will be. He does not change. Okay. 
it's in that relationship that Moses and Israel has with God and to us today as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice I say something. Let me point out a, a, a distinction here. I believe the Bible. I believe in Jesus Christ. Notice the difference? There's a different meaning there. Many people recite the baptismal formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we do it a little differently. We say, I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's different. Because it says we are actually being drawn into fellowship with God. Into fellowship with God. We are being baptized into. We have a union with God through Christ. And that is where a joy comes in. After Moses discusses all of the difficulties, we are brought low, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Even if we live those 80 years, it's still brief, and those years are filled with toil and trouble because we live under the curse. When Moses approaches the end of this prayer, he makes an application in verse 12. So, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. This brief lifespan that is over and we evaporate like a sigh, like the mist. We disappear. Moses says, consider the short time you have. Consider the span of your life. Number your days. Take account of them. And live your life for the glory of God. Not wasting your life with with trivial pursuits, not wasting your life with, with sinful pursuits, but serving God with all your days in all your ways. That is how we number our days, and that is how we learn wisdom. Apply yourself to the Word of God. Meditate on His Word. Don't just try to read quickly through a passage of the Bible and say, oh, I got my Bible reading done today. It might be a chapter, it might be three chapters, it might be five verses. Meditate. Make sure it's working its way into your heart, into your mind, your soul. And actually make the connections, because the Bible, while it's composed of 66 different books, it has one coherent message. And we often can make connections between different parts of the Bible, and when we do that, that's part of meditating on the Bible. We make connections between different parts of the Bible, and we will see the richness and the consistency 
and the wisdom that is contained in the pages of this book. From the books of Moses to the final book of John, the book of Revelation, we have the beginning of history and the end of history and everything in between. Number our days and consider the need to glorify God. What is man's highest purpose, his chief end? It is to enjoy, uh, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it's actually only those who trust in the Lord, who have come to the Savior Jesus Christ, who actually get to enjoy God. Everyone will glorify God, but only believers will actually get to enjoy him as their Lord, as their Creator and Savior. Return, O Lord, how long? I'm picking up at verse 13. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy in the morning us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Notice that Moses comes back to a relationship with God, and he says, Satisfy us in the morning, every morning. Your mercies are new every morning. Your grace, your steadfast love, the immovable love of God satisfies us every morning. He should be on our minds. He should be our vision in the morning and in the evening and all through the day so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Here's where we find joy. Here's where we find security. Here's where we find a relief from the relentless disappointments of living life under the curse. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses is praying here that the Lord, we pray that someday in the future you're going to balance this out. As many years as we've been afflicted and seen evil, we hope and pray that we will see similarly as many years of joy and happiness and experiencing of your love. But I have news. Actually, grace is greater than our sin. And the years that we will have experiencing the love of God, the joy of the Lord, the peace that passes understanding, life outside of a cursed world, those years will be multiplied more and more and more. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Some people change that 10,000 to 10 million. It doesn't matter. 10,000, 10 million We've only just begun because God has promised us eternity, eternal life. Not for as many years as we've been afflicted, but multitudes to the, to the 10th power, to the 20th power, to, to whatever, beyond what we can imagine. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. There's a reason we sang that song about children, uh, teaching the children the, the deeds of God. Let your power, let your works be shown to us. Why? Because when we observe the powerful works of God, our faith is encouraged. 
Our faith is strengthened. We see what he does in the earth. We see the evidence of his providence, and we are encouraged in our faith. Our faith is strengthened, and we endure and persevere through this life. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Not wrath, not anger, but favor. And then he says this, which I've always found fascinating, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It, it's so important to close with this that he repeats it. Tw- he repeats himself. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our life is short, and it's troubled. We have an anchor behind the veil. We have an anchor for our faith. We have hope, unshakable hope for the future. And even in this, what, we, what is sometimes called this veil of tears, this valley of, of the shadow of death, even here we experience the unshakable, unending love of God. But when we die, what will be left? Only what we have done. When I was growing up, my parents had a plaque in our house that they hung up. I think it's in our house now. Only one life it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what Moses is saying here. It's the Lord who will establish the work of our hands and it will be a continuing testimony and of continuing benefit to those who come after us. But it is the Lord that does it because, like I said, 10 years after we're gone, most people will forget about us. But it is the Lord who will take the works of our hands and establish those works that they endure. And they will be the foundation upon which future generations of the church will build. Actually, Christ is the foundation, but we help build it up a little bit. Think of some of the great people who, though dead, yet speak to us from the grave. Think of a, well, I could go all the way, I could go back to Moses here. I could go back to Abraham. The writer of Hebrews takes us through a history lesson in the 11th chapter, shows us these heroes of faith, but we could add others. We still rely on the works of John Calvin. He, he lived 400 plus years ago, and we still use his works and find them immensely profitable. A man named John Knox is often thought to be the founder of Presbyterianism. And Presbyterianism was formed in in the cauldron of oppression, in the cauldron of persecution. John Knox had some famous encounters with Queen Mary. He knew she, she knew who he was, and she did not like him. And he knew who she was, 
and he proclaimed God's word to her. He was trying to tell her about the need to allow Presbyterians to worship as they as they believe the Bible directed them to worship. And she says, Sir, my conscience is not so. And he replies, Madam, conscience must be informed. You understand what he said? You need to learn from the Bible. Your conscience needs to be informed correctly. It is said that Mary feared the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000. The Lord established the work of his hands. We could go on. Samuel Rutherford, who wrote one of the, whose final will and testament is the foundation for one of our beautiful hymns, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. He too was a martyr for the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. He was arrested during the reign of Charles II, sentenced to die for treason. And the night before he was to be put on trial, he said, I will go where few great men go. He said, I, I will never stand trial. By the time my trial starts, I will go where few great men go. And he died that night, but not before testifying to the grace and goodness of God. <laughs> It said of him that he died calling for a well-tuned harp and singing of Emmanuel's land. Shall we go on? J. Gresham Machen. The Hodge, the Hodges, Charles Hodge, A. A. Hodge, Benjamin Warfield, they were all heroes of the faith who defended the word of God when it was under attack, and God established the work of of their hands. Now you might say, I'm no B.B. Warfield. I had to learn that the hard way because coming out of seminary, you think you're going to be the next great, right? I had this fantasy, I'm going to be the next B.B. Warfield. That lasted about 20 minutes. And then reality set in, no, but God established the work of their hands. It was God who did that. You and I may not be a Warfield, a Hodge, a Knox, a Calvin, or any of the other famous people in our history. I'll tell you what, though. You could be a Jenny Geddes. Do you know who Jenny Geddes was? She was a, a woman in Scotland who took a stand for the purity of worship Worship according to the Word of God, unencumbered by various ceremonies and vestments and so forth. It was a custom then at those times that you brought your own chair to church, and she had a little three-legged stool. It was her milking stool that she brought to church. And in the back of the church, she was sitting on her stool when, by decree of the king, a priest appeared wearing the vestments and beginning the worship service with all the ceremonies that the Scots Presbyterians had rejected because they were not found in the Word of God. 
Jenny Geddes, the simple worker woman in Scotland, grabs her stool and hurls it at the priest's head. And she shouts, will ye say a mass in my ear? We still not tell that story because God established the work of her hands, even throwing that stool. It was a strike for liberty to worship according to the word of God and not the dictates and traditions of men. That is at the heart of our Presbyterian background. Men and women died for that principle, and God established the work of their hands. In God alone is our hope, not in this world, not even in ourselves. God is our refuge and our strength, our dwelling place from all generations. There is no hope for us, and there is no joy for us, and there is no happiness for us in a fallen world apart from a relationship of faith and love in the Lord. <laughs> And he establishes the work of our hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you teach us even in the prayers of an ancient saint, Moses, who lived his life and records his emotions, really, and his observations for us in, the, in this prayer. And we understand that there is no joy apart from you, that you are faithful. Your love does not change. Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. We pray, Father, that our minds might be sober, that we would not deny the state in which we live, but we would rejoice in your presence, in the unfailing love that you give us every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.